New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin stops by to talk about her new book, Better Than Before, and our Ramsey personality, Christy Wright, joins me in studio. Plus so much more. It all starts right now. Helping business leaders grow themselves, their team, and their profits. This is the Entree Leadership Podcast. Now, here is your host, Ken Coleman. We are coming to you from the Music City. This is the podcast of leaders, by leaders, and for leaders. Excited to have Christy Wright in with me today. Back from maternity leave, back on the road, doing all things Christy Wright. What does that look like right now? I'll tell you what, it's crazy. You take three months off and the work does not stop. So it's been nonstop, but I love it. I love being back. All right, Carter, little man, is how old now? Four months. Four months. He's huge. Yeah, big kid. He's in the 95th percentile. He's yeah. a, he's going to be a, he's going to be an athlete. That's Are you what I'm getting hoping. some sleep? Yes, he's good now. We were, we're on a great schedule, knock on wood. So I'm coming to work rested, but still getting to enjoy him and his awake time. So it's fun. This is fun. And so here we are, summer months, but we've got a great fall schedule. You'll be out there on the road. Yes. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But this is fun for us, and I'm really glad to have you in the studio on this because Gretchen Rubin, we're both big fans. Yes. You love her first book, which was yes. a wild success. Talk a little bit about why you like her work so much. Well, I think it's so applicable to anyone in any stage of life. So The Happiness Project was so practical. She has great research but it's just real life stuff we all deal with. So you're reading it and page after page, you're going, ah, me too, me too, me too, I deal with that. And so I love all of her writing and everything that's kind of in her wheelhouse. And I write on similar things. So I really learn a lot from her as well. Well, you're a personal growth junkie. I mean, that's that's fair. Uh, And and I am as well. And you're so passionate about what proper balance looks like. You really define that well. So when you see this new book, Better Than Before, and I love the subtitle, Mastering the habits of our everyday lives. Yes. Right? That, that everyday lives part makes it very tangible. What I love about this is that it is a research-based book. It really hits us where we are. When you see a book like this come out, how do you process process this rather in your own way? What's your Christy Wright personal funnel? for growing on this. Well, I think for me, what's so great about writing on these similar subjects is that it's such great accountability for me in my own life and balance and time management and relationships and personal growth. And this book specifically, you know, we think that our life is made up of these big grand decisions where we go to school, when we start a family. It's really just the everyday habits. It's just what she talks about in this book. Your life is made up of what you do every day. Mm. And so I love that she digs into that because we can change that. And then it changes our life. All right, so we got to talk habits. Yes. Let's have some fun. Let's put you on the spot. Okay. And you can put me on the spot. Okay. All right, so here we go, just for fun. What's a habit that you really struggled to either get rid of or to implement? So a struggle. I'm looking for a struggle story, meaning it could have been something that took you forever to make a good habit stick or something that took you forever to kill. Okay, I'll tell you, I am a creative person. Yeah. And so follow through is hard for me. Oh, hello. Anything on projects at work or projects at home or projects anywhere. I have (laughs) no shortage of ideas, but man, I have started 15 ideas and I don't finish one. Right. And so having the habit of follow through because I'm such a high D, high I, no C, no C at all. She's reading my Um, mail too. It's difficult. The follow through is tough. So having accountability and systems in place and habits in place that make me finish things is really important. Mm, that's so good. What's yours? Let's have oh, it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, for the longest time, uh, developing a good habit of sleep. Oh, okay. Uh, naturally a late night hawk. Me too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So really function better later mm-hmm. at night, mm-hmm. thus not naturally a right. great personality in the morning. Right. You know, it just, right. it's not my sweet moment, you know? Right. And uh, so for years, 
you know, after adult, now college doesn't count, but into adulthood, really developing good rest habits to mm-hmm. where you're not going to bed super late, and but you still got to get up and go to work. Got to right. be a responsible adult, right. which at least I was that. Right. But just learning how to sleep well, mm-hmm. things that I would do before going to bed, it really was a big change about five years ago. Kids helped, mm-hmm. but it took me a while right. to develop good habits for being able to rest well. Well, and I think it's hard if you don't value sleep. I don't. I don't value it I that much. I'm just like, well, if I need to make more, yeah. two more hours in the day, I'll stay up two yeah. hours later, right? That was like, my I deal. can just cut into the muscle. I don't no want to stop having fun. Right. <laughs> we got too much to do. <laughs> yeah. Like before kids, it was not unlike me to come home from work, have dinner with Stacey, whatever, and then play Tiger Woods when I was in my early 20s for four hours. Okay. Just obnoxious. <laughs> I said, go to bed. Sure. And you don't, want to, you don't want to go to bed. So, sure. and then seeing how that affected me, mm-hmm. it's tough stuff. Affected sure. everything, eating habits, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, it's there a you cycle. Go. Fun stuff. All right, hey, let's get right to this. And by the way, stay tuned because Christy's got some takeaways after hearing this conversation. And I, she's really going to read your mail. This woman is a phenomenal communicator. Such a treat to have her in with us. So, get your notebooks out, not just for the conversation with Gretchen, but we're going to have some great takeaways and. When we come back from the conversation, I'm going to tell you about our goal tracker. We mentioned this in our last podcast. We want to make sure you get this free resource. So that's coming to you as well. But right now, let's get right to our conversation with Gretchen Rubin on her brand new book, Better Than Before. Well, Gretchen, I want to focus on a phrase that you use around habits. And I think it's a wonderful framework for why you wrote this book. You say that habits are the invisible architecture of our everyday lives. That is a wonderful word picture, and and words matter so much, and you believe that as well. What does that actually look like? What does that invisible architecture look like when it shapes us every day? Well, absolutely. I mean, habits, research suggests, are make up about 40% of everyday life. And what that means is that if we have habits that work for us, it's going to be a lot easier for us to be happier, healthier, and more productive. And if our habits don't work for us, that's just going to be a much bigger challenge because they just do make up so much of what we do every day. And so if you're trying to get better than before, do something better, working on your habits is a really good way to start because it's freeing and energizing because you're not making decisions, you're not using willpower, and yet it does infiltrate every part of what you're doing. I love this book because it's very practical, but it's based on actual studies, and that's what I find to be so fascinating about this. So before we dive deeper into the conversation, would you give us a summary of how you set up this research, which then led to the book? You know, I was just absolutely fascinated by the subject of habits, but I became increasingly frustrated because there were all these questions about habits that I didn't see being addressed. Like, there's this unspoken assumption that we all have the same aptitude for forming habits, and we all have the same aptitude, attitude toward habits. You know, so if it works for you, it's going to work for me just as well. Or if it works for Steve Jobs, or if it works for Benjamin Franklin, it'll work for me. And that seemed to me clearly not true. You know, sometimes we change habits overnight, and sometimes we don't. It seems like no matter how much we want to, we can't change a habit. And so what I did was I tried to look at everything I possibly could that touched on habits, whether it was directly about habits or about something very closely related like willpower and self-control, 
resilience, addiction. I don't look at addiction, but of course addiction has a lot to teach people who are looking at habits. And even things like monastic governance mm. or the design of kindergarten routines. I've really concluded that anything that's true of a five-year-old is probably true for a 55-year-old. <laughs> um, and so I was really trying to cast a wide net and also reading memoirs and biographies and, and trying to understand like how, how do people think about this? How does it play through? And, and for people who are looking at it from really different perspectives, what are they seeing? Because I felt like a lot of the research was focused in on like one little area that would be true as far as it went, but I felt like nobody had the whole picture. Um, and what I was really trying to do was give a person an overview of like, if you were going to try to change a habit, what's every strategy that's available to you? Yeah, maybe doing it first thing in the morning is a good idea for you, but maybe it's not. What else could you do? There's a lot of things. And so I identified 21 different strategies that people use to make or break their habits. And I did that by just trying to look at as much material as I could and figuring out how to work it into a coherent framework. Yeah, and that framework you call the four tendencies framework. And what you're essentially saying is that people generally fall into one of those four tendencies. So walk us through those four tendencies, because I think this is a wonderful context for folks that they can begin to identify, oh, that sounds like me, as we talk about habits. Yes. So the four tendencies, most people can pinpoint themselves very quickly, but there is also a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com, for people who are like, mm, I need to check. I want to like take a quiz and find out. Yeah, that's good. Like 170,000 people have taken it at this point. And so this has to do with how you respond to an expectation, whether it's an outer expectation like a work deadline or request from a spouse or an inner expectation like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, your own desire to start a business in your free time. So there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Upholders readily respond to outer and inner expectations. They meet a work deadline. They keep a New Year's resolution without much effort. They want to meet external expectations, but their expectations for themselves are just as important or more important. Next are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They hate anything arbitrary or irrational. They want to know, why am I listening to you? So they make everything an inner expectation because if they endorse it, if they buy into it, they'll meet it without trouble. If they don't accept it, they won't follow it. Next are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got insight into this tendency when someone told me, well, the funny thing about me is when I was on, in high school on the track team, I never missed track practice, but I can't go running now. Well, when there was a team and a coach providing external accountability, the habit was effortless. But without that, the habit wasn't forming. So the, what was needed was external accountability. And finally, rebels. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to do the opposite. And I must say, of all the tendencies, rebel is the smallest tendency, and obliger is the largest tendency. Mm. So anyone who's struggling to meet inner expectations, the answer is to put in a form of external accountability. If you're having trouble meeting a deadline for a career transition you want to make, give yourself external accountability, and it's going to be a lot, lot easier to follow through on that habit. Now, which one are you? Well, I'm an upholder, and <laughs> that is also a tiny, tiny category. And many things became clear to me when I realized, you know, here I am writing this book about habits, but I'm actually a very extreme personality when it comes to habits. I kind of had to rewrite half the book 
because I thought I was, when I went into it, I was pretty typical because there was no way, there was no existing framework to understand how people compared to each other. Mm. But once I figured out this framework, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on the freaky fringe. <laughs> um, most people, overwhelmingly, people are questioners or obligers. And this has enormous implications for healthcare professionals, device manufacturers, teachers, spouses, HR people, teams. Because if you want to communicate in a way with someone and you want to be compelling, you have to talk to them in the way and set up things in a way that's going to allow them to succeed. For instance, if you're working with an obliger, you want to give them systems of external accountability, like deadlines and supervision and benchmarks, because without that, they're, they're not going to move forward. That was hard for me as an upholder to understand until I came up with this framework. That's right. This is wonderful stuff for, as you said, spouses, uh, leadership, teams, and I'd throw another category in there, selfishly, as parents. This is wonderful information because we're simply trying to help our kids form good habits. And when we know this kind of stuff, boy, it's inside baseball. It's really great stuff. All right, let's... Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the people that I hear about from the most are people who are the parents of rebel children. Yes. Saying... How can you parent a rebel child? Because the more you tell them to do something, the more they resist. And that's, that is, in fact, exactly what rebel parents experience. And so it's been very interesting for me to talk to, to parents of rebel children about how they successfully navigate that. But each of the tendencies has strong points and weak points. And it's all a question of figuring out for yourself or for other people, if you're a parent or a manager, how can you set things up to help people do their best yeah. and succeed. Now, we can't just leave this. So we can't go through all of them or we'll get off total track here. For the parents that are listening in and they've got the rebel kid, I feel like we teased them so much we got to help them. In, in short, what would you say to those folks as far as handling that rebel child? This is hard medicine. But from what I know about rebels and what parents are telling me about what works, the best thing to do is to give the rebel child information present it as something that only they can deal with, and then look away. Mm-hmm. Because if you're watching and monitoring, that sets up an expectation that then the rebel wants to resist and push back. So you say something, so a friend of mine was saying how when she realized her son was a rebel, she was like, look, you want to play the, because the rebel wants to do what, the, what they want to do. So right. they can do anything they want to do. And she's like, you want to take violin. So I'm, I'm paying good money for you to take violin lessons, because that's what you want. Now, if a person's going to learn how to play the violin, they must practice. So you need, if you want to play the violin, you have to practice. And she said, like, every night she'd been reminding him and nagging him to do it. And the more she reminded him to do it, the more he would resist. And she said, once they had that conversation, she never mentioned it again. And she said it was really hard. But then he can do it because then he didn't have to resist her. He's just like, well, this is what I want. Um, Somebody else told me that with her mother in music lessons, Whatever she would say she wanted to quit, her mom would say, you know, why, why are we wasting our money on the piano lessons? You're not making nearly fast enough records. I think you should quit. And that was like made her want to stick with it. Wow. Um, or, uh, but that can feel uh, dangerous. Yes, it does. To do that, neg- that, that reverse psychology. Mm-hmm. But you just have to remember that the more you tell them to do something, the more you're going to ignite that spirit of opposition. But the more you present it as a challenge, they love a challenge. They love to do it in their own way. 
They love authenticity and identity. So you're like, this is what you want. Mm. This is the kind of person you are. This is what you choose. Mm. That's but good. You just might go about it in a way that is not what you as a parent would want. Yes. <laughs> And you know what? That translates to leadership as well. You know what I mean? Where you kind of got that rebel employee. Maybe they're not a rebel in spirit and in heart, but they just have rebel tendencies, right? They want to do it on their own and and how to guide them as opposed to manage them. Big difference. That's really good stuff. So what managers of rebels say is like what works for them is to say like, hey, you've got the chops to Mm -hmm. get this done. This is your budget. This is when the client needs it. Go do your thing. And the more freedom they have to do it in their own way, then the more that they will embrace that. And they'll do things like they won't keep a deadline or they won't keep the budget because they have to prove that they're doing it their own way. But they they will deliver because often they do want to show what they can do. But the more you micromanage, the more that they're going to start pushing back. And so it is tricky. Um, I've talked to people who who manage lots of rebels, and it's really something that they grapple with because you really have to resist that urge to get in there and tinker because you can really uh, have a destructive influence on whatever they're doing, whereas if you give them like just general guidelines and freedom, then they tend to do much better. Yeah, that's so good. Again, folks, this is why the four tendencies is just wonderful information in this book. All right, I want to talk some about the myths, Gretchen, because you, you identify yeah. some myths about habits, and this gives us great clarity as we try to master habits. After all, that's the subtitle of the book. So let's talk yeah. about some of the myths that you discovered. Well, one of the myths is that there's a magic one-size-fits-all solution. You know, a lot of times it's like, do it first thing in the morning, start small, give yourself a cheat day, do it for 30 days. And the fact is, these work sometimes for some people, but they don't work all the time for everyone. So what I found is the myth is that there is an answer. You know, or like we can look at somebody and say, well, this is, what are the seven habits of great entrepreneurs. Well, if I did that, then I'm going to be a great entrepreneur. No. When you look at the people who are the happiest and the healthiest and the most productive and creative, what you realize is that they're the people that have figured out what works for them. And they work like crazy to make sure they get what they need. You know, if they work in a best, as some people do, an environment of a lot of silence and quiet and calm and clarity, that's what they work. That's, they make sure that's what they have. If they want bustle and profusion and lots of things happening all the time and people running around, then they make sure that's what they've got. Um, this comes up in the most basic ways, like morning people, night people. There are, a lot of us are somewhere in between, but there truly are morning people and night people. This is hardwired. It's not something you can adjust by moving your bedtime around. And yet, over and over, people, a friend of mine who I knew well, looked, who I knew was a night person, I'd known him for years, I, he can barely get out of bed in time to go to work, absolutely at his most creative and productive later in the day. And he looked me in the eye and said, for the new year, I'm going to start getting up early to run. And I said, have you met yourself? <laughs> that is not setting yourself up for success. I get why that works on paper and why it might be a good idea for somebody else, but that's not what's true for you. you this is, that's not the way... For you to set the habit. So this myth is like, if only I could figure out the right, kind of the right specific habit, then I'll succeed. No, it's the question of the match. What is true for you? And then how do you bring your habits? It, like if you're an obliger, what you need is external accountability. That's what you need. So figure that out and you'll be finished. And then a related myth is the myth of the 21 days or the 30 days. And the fact is, just as there's no magic one-size-fits-all solution in terms of shape, what the habit looks like, there's no time. There's no, you can't just repeat something a certain number of time and then 
presto, it's turned into a habit. Some habits form faster, some form much more slowly, some form overnight. And so there isn't just, it's a myth to think that there's a certain number of repetitions that's going to solidify that habit for us. Oh, I love that. Folks, I just want to make sure that we, we single one thing out that Gretchen just said there. I love the question you asked your friend. Have you met yourself? You dive deep yeah. on this in the book. That we, you know, it, Before we even get into the, some of the habits, we've got to be honest with who we are. And I yeah. thought the example of your friend was a wonderful framework there. Have you met yourself? It's a good question. So I have the 21 strategies, and the first two have to do with self-knowledge and understanding the kind of person you are and how that might affect your habits. For instance, the way this often comes up, especially in teams, is marathoners and sprinters when it comes to work habits. So marathoners are like me, and we like to do everything like starting way in advance. We like to do a little bit steadily. We don't like to be up against deadlines. But then there are sprinters, and sprinters like the adrenaline of the finish line, and they like to work long and hard right up against the deadline, and they feel like that's when they're at their most creative and productive. If they start too early, they kind of burn out, they waste time, they lose momentum and energy. And so it's really important to understand neither way is right or wrong. Like as a marathoner, I was always, before I understood this, I was always trying to convince sprinters that they were doing it wrong because to me that just seemed crazy. But it's not. For them, that's what works. It's just there's no right way or wrong way. It's however you do your best work. But you can see how in teams it's hard to manage this sometimes. But I think that sometimes just having a vocabulary and understanding, these are just two different ways that people go about with their work habits. And so how can we all do our best work? How can we figure this out rather than like, oh, we all need to do it the way the team leader says we should do it. Or we all need to do it this way because, you know, some book says that's what you should do. It's, it's, it's really to know yourself. And when you, when you succeed, when you do your best work, when you feel most creative, most productive, kind of most, most yourself. Mm. Uh, fascinated to know if there was something that was an aha moment for you. I'm sure there were, but what was a surprising finding? Because, again, the study of this is what led to the book. So what surprised you? One thing that just was so surprising to me that it was, it was almost impossible for me to grasp it. So I, I look at all the research and everything, but I also – try to listen very carefully to what people are saying around me because I think sometimes understanding the obvious is the hardest thing. Like, you know, what's right in front of you is sometimes hardest to see. And I was very puzzled because several people told me the exact same anecdote in almost the exact same words. And it was a story that didn't make sense to me. And finally, I was like, clearly there's some aspect of human nature at work here because why are all these very different people who don't know each other telling me the same story that doesn't make sense? And most memorably, it was when I went to my college reunion and I was talking to my friend Brad about his habits. And he said, well, I wanted to form the habit of exercise. So I decided to train for the marathon. And I trained for the marathon and I love training for the marathon. And I ran the marathon and it was amazing. And I took the rest days off that you take after you run the marathon. And I haven't run since. Mm. And then... I heard this from several people. And then I heard people had similar things. Oh, I quit sugar for Lent. I thought, this is amazing. I've finally given up sugar, but now I eat just as much sugar as ever. Oh, I did a 30-day challenge, but now the 30 days is over and I'm not doing it anymore. And what I realized is that when you have a finish line, like running the marathon or giving up something for Lent, there's a finish line. And a finish line means you're finished. And so people are like, oh, I'm done here. It's, it's, 
disruptive if what you really want to do is to form a habit. And this was surprising to me because I thought, well, something like hitting a big milestone like running the marathon would be energizing. It would make you more committed to your habit. You would have this big success, and so now you're like all the more likely to go deeper into the habit. But actually, it has the opposite effect. And so we have to be very careful whenever there are finish lines because if it's a behavior that we want to continue indefinitely, if you want to get up every morning and work on your own project for an hour, you don't want to say like, you know, be aiming, aiming, aiming for like a certain deadline, a certain finish line, because then once you hit that finish, you feel like, well, I did what I set out to do. I'm finished. And if you need to start, you're going to start over and starting over is very hard. So it's important not to think of finish lines, but to think of milestones. So maybe you've hit an an exciting milestone along the way, but it's not a finish line. That is a huge distinction. Milestone versus finish line. And this, again, this is not just personal. This is great for businesses to apply as well. No, and it's interesting because I was talking to, I was invited to come and speak to a bunch of trainers at a big, one of the big gyms here um, in New York City, and they were saying like, oh, well, we see this because we have a bridal package. Count down to your wedding day. Get fit. <laughs> and what we've noticed is that they never come back. Right. Like they'll, be, they'll come religiously during this time, but then we lose them as customers. And I said, that's right, because they feel like they're finished. They had their wedding day. They reached their finish line. It's over. And so they were thinking, like, well, how do we change the, the language that we use around our marketing so that people don't see it as a finish line, but they see it as a milestone? Because it's an important way to get people in, but how do we make them? Because you might think, like, oh, well, they've come so faithfully. Haven't they formed a habit of coming to this gym? They themselves might think that they formed a habit of going to the gym, but they hadn't. Mm. They really hadn't. They've been working towards that finish line. And a wedding day is a, for exercise and, and eating. It's one that I hear a lot. Men and women alike. Yeah, You know, they aim for that wedding, and then they're like, ooh, that's, that's over. Wow, that's really um, good. That's really good. Yeah. And I guess, and it's important, too, as we think about this, that if, you're, if you want to go on an adventure, it's fine to put a finish line to certain things. We just have to delineate between where we use a finish line. That's the real gift here to this concept and to this book, right? Finish lines can be good, but they can also be detrimental. And they're great for hitting a goal. If what you want to do is hit a goal then finish lines are amazing because you do get that excitement. The problem is, if, is what you really want to do is to form an indefinite habit. Right. So, like, maybe people know NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, where you write a novel in a month, and you write 1,500 words a day or something like that for a month, and then at the end you've written a novel. Well, that's great if what you want to do is write a novel in a month. If what you want to do is to work on your novel for an hour every day for the next five years – then that could interfere with it because you're like, ooh, I, I did it. I, I did what I set out to do. But what you really wanted to do was to have the habit. And so it's, it, finish lines are great for goals, but if what you want is an indefinite habit, you have to really be very careful about the way you think about that. I mean, the same thing with dieting. Oh, I hit my goal weight, 140 pounds. Now I can go back to eating normally. What happens when you eat normally? You gain all the weight right back because yep. it's not about hitting that goal weight. It's about eating healthfully forever. That's right. All right. So Gretchen, we know that when you write a book, you learn a ton and you've shared so much of that with us, but let's get personal. Let's put you on the spot here. What's a habit that you changed? Well, a habit that I've changed most recently is I started a podcast with my sister called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And it was quite fascinating to me because in starting a podcast, 
I had a clean slate, which is one of the strategies, which is when you're doing something new, when you're going through a big transition, you have an opportunity for a new habit because there are no old habits, and so it's much easier to shape your habits. Right. And so with this podcast, I had to really think about, like, well, how do we want to do this, and how do we want to set it up, and what are my habits of work going to be so that I can run this easily because it's a whole new responsibility that I have on top of everything else I'm already doing. Um, how can I set it up in a way that's going to allow me to execute as painlessly as possible Indefinitely, mm-hmm. um, because the little habits that you make at the beginning, again, this is the strategy of the clean slate, the strategy, the habits that you put in at the beginning, a lot of times you think like, oh, it doesn't really matter where I sit the first day of my history class in college. But then guess what? You sit there every day for the rest of the semester. So you know, all things being equal, we tend to continue the way that we begin. So you always want to think very carefully at beginnings about how you're setting up your habits, because once they're put into place, they get hard to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One last thing I want to ask you before we let you go, and I think this is a wonderful challenge in in the book, and, and that is that you believe that groups can be yeah. a wonderful thing, and, and essentially accountability. And I know yeah. this is true for my personality type, but I want you to talk about how you think this works for everybody when it comes to really setting habits. These are the milestones, not goals, but those okay. habits that last a long time. How do groups and accountability play into this? Certainly for obligers, the external accountability is absolutely key and crucial and the necessary piece. And so for obligers, I have a starter kit on my website, GretchenRubin.com, for people who want to launch a group of people who are going to be an accountability group, you know, a habits group where you're going to hold each other accountable. And it's like AA or Weight Watchers. People just do better when they're held accountable, and there's a lot of energy and ideas and support and accountability that come from groups. But even people who aren't obligers, upholders and questioners often also, and even rebels if they want to do that, find it helpful to be in these groups. Now, you can hire a coach. That works great. You can work with a trainer. But for a lot of people, they want the social aspect of a group. And also, it's free to have a group. You know, you're not paying for a coach or whatever. And and I think that a lot of things happen. One problem with having an accountability partner, that can work, but then you're sort of dependent on the partner staying engaged. And over and over, people have said to me, like, oh, I was doing a really good job on this thing or that thing, but then my accountability partner kind of drifted off, and then I sort of slowed down and without really realizing it got stuck again. A group is like you're not dependent on one person as much. And you get a lot of ideas, and, and it's fun to be part of a group. And you don't all have to be working on the same habit. I have a group of friends who are all ABD, which is when you're a graduate student and you've finished all your coursework, but you still haven't written your dissertation. Very dangerous uh, for <laughs> PhD students. The procrastination around that is a very big challenge. And so what they did is they formed an accountability group. They weren't in the same field. They weren't studying the same material, and they didn't look at each other's stuff. All they did was meet to say, have you written that chapter? Have you talked to your, uh, your advisor? Like, have you scheduled this? Have, when are you going to do that? Now, I have to say, they met in a bar once a month. I think they might have made more progress had they met, like, in a coffee shop. Yes, maybe. Um, but they all finished their dissertations, and they all say it was really, really important just to have that feeling that someone's looking over your shoulder and someone's saying to you, like, hey, man, you said you were going to do this. Like, what's up with that? And so these accountability groups can be very powerful for people. The book is Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives. It's a great read. It is steeped in wonderful research that you've heard uh, just a smidge of today. And Gretchen, i got to tell you, just personally, 
really enjoy your work. Uh, love your blog. Love what you do. Your books. The Happiness Project was a wonderful read as well. And uh, I know I speak on behalf of our entire audience and our team here at Entree Leadership. We're grateful for your work and for you hanging out with us today. Oh, well, I appreciate it so much. It was so fun to talk to you. Absolutely. Great stuff. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you are enjoying our Infusion Soft series. Man, I mean, these are the Snickers of Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Clay Mask and Infusion Soft. Clay, you like that? And all of a sudden, you're a candy impresario. <laughs> I love it. And Snickers is the best. That's, That's right. Great. Because they satisfy, and so do you, with these nuggets. Here is this episode's question: What does it mean to be a liberated? Entrepreneur. That is a soaring thought. I mean, that just sounds good. I, I get energy when I hear that. What does it mean to be a liberated entrepreneur? Oh, yeah. What, what it means is it's, it's recognizing the reality that what most business owners find when they start their company is not the freedom that they were after, but actually uh, they, they really become kind of prisoners, even slaves to their business. And they they don't have they don't find the control that they were after and the the satisfaction and it, it takes a long time and some business owners never really get that they're constantly feeling like they've the business controls them instead of them controlling the business and so the liberated entrepreneur is about implementing smart automation in your business that really enables you to sort of clone yourself and and make make a lot more effective use of your time so that you can be successful and not constantly feel like the business is just uh, keeping you chained to your desk. Boy, that's so good. And I love that phrase. And I also know that liberating entrepreneurs is absolutely at the core of Infusionsoft mission. What fires you up so much about liberating entrepreneurs? Yeah, we we love helping small businesses be successful. We love helping them get organized, grow sales, save time so they can have a great business and a great life. And uh, we love helping them do that with our software and the services we provide so that they can have a lot more fun in their business. Well, that's well said. From his heart to your bottom line, I'm telling you folks, check them out. They can help you. That's why they exist. Learn so much more at Infusionsoft.com slash Entree. That's Infusionsoft.com slash Entree. Clay, we have entirely too much fun on these, uh, but I absolutely (laughs) love them. It's perfect for my attention span. And uh, I just want to say we're grateful for you hanging out with us here on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. We love doing it, and we love your audience. I think we've got kindred spirits in you guys and what we do here, and we just appreciate the opportunity to work with you guys and hopefully help a bunch of your listeners to be more successful in their business. Absolutely, man. We'll talk sooner rather than later, man. Have a good one. Okay, thanks so much. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. And before I give this to Christy for a little takeaway, because she's like, she's scribbling like a mad woman over here. This is very fun. Uh, I want to tell you about our brand new goal tracker. Now, I told you about this in our last podcast. For those of you that heard it, I'll get right to this very simple stuff. Our team at Entree Leadership has created this goal tracker tool so that you can measure your results. And we know that when we write things down, when we put things in front of our eyes and we begin to track it, we have greater rate of success. Here's what we want you to do. You just simply text the word tracker, T-R-A-C-K-E-R, tracker. Just text it to 33444. 33444 is the number to text the word tracker. And we will get you this free tool so that you can begin now to track your 
goals and win big in life. So take advantage of that opportunity. And Christy, I know you're excited about that. We talked about this earlier. Yes. You're like, what is this goal tracker thing? I need to thing? use it. I'm ready for it. Yeah. How are you going to use it in your talk? You're, you're kicking around this idea of using it in a talk. Absolutely. Well, when you're managing your time, your time is made up of a lot of little goals, even if it's just a goal to read or, or get more sleep, like you said. So, yeah. you know, you can put that in, in the goal tracker. I'm excited to use it. All right. So, so much to take away sure. from the conversation. Yes. Dying to know. What'd you walk away with? So the one thing that you mentioned when you were talking to her is the quote that she said, have you met yourself? When she was oh, talking about her friend, great? it was so good. So here's what I think is so important for us to realize is, is, and she talks about this, there's not one formula for success, right? There's best practices. If you want to be successful, you need to do the work required. But how you go about that work should depend on how you're wired and what works for you. So what works for you, Ken, may be different than me, may be different than Dave or someone else. And so it really comes down to knowing yourself and being self-aware and setting yourself up for success. So if you're not a morning person, don't try to force yourself into this formula that morning people use to be successful. Find what works for you. And what I love about this whole concept that I really am just would love to talk about more is it it really ties in with what I talk about life balance. People think this is what life balance should look like. It should look exactly like this, or it should look like that person or my neighbor or my mom. But really life balance is about being true to yourself. What does your version look like? Is it working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week if you're a single person and that doesn't take away from something else? Maybe, maybe it does. Or maybe you're in a different season of life. So figuring out what works for you in your life phase and what's true for you is so important to finding that sense of balance. And as she talks about, it's important to being successful as well. It is, but you really nailed something. I want to stay here for a second. The freedom Mm -hmm. that that honesty must bring. Yes. Because you mentioned this. We look at our peers, don't we? And we go, well, they're successful. Yes. So my formula for balance Mm -hmm. has got to look like this. And that creates all kinds of nonsense, doesn't it? It does. And it's interesting because I see this. I I do a lot of coaching with women and you see this with women specifically. But I think we all struggle with this comparison thing where I look at another mom and I say, oh, man, she cooks every night. I should cook more. No, if I don't like to cook. That's not a good use of my time to cook all the time. So find what what things bring you joy, what things breathe life into you, and do those things. Stay in your strengths, whether it's in your life outside of work or even in your wheelhouse at work. It's going to make you successful when you find what works for you. You're going to thrive that way. Is the hardest part of that process, the realization process, that you're not like somebody else? Is it just swallowing whatever kind of misnomers and the comparisons and the pride that comes with that? And once you kind of swallow it and you begin to experience the freedom, what's it look like on the other side? What's yeah. the emotion? Yeah, I think it gives you it gives you such permission and freedom. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a runner and I love to run, but people that are not runners are very quick to say, "I don't like running." So they don't try to run. They don't make running a priority or a goal or schedule time for it. So what are those other things in your life that you're exhausting yourself trying to do uh, that you don't enjoy, that are not in your strengths? Um, And give yourself permission to just find what those things that bring you joy and do those only. You're going to be the most successful when you find the formula that makes you successful, not trying to emulate someone else's. And this is a this is an I think I want to mention because I think what you just said ties into something that we have actually up right now. I think it's about a two minute clip or so at entreleadership.com. Christy's talking about no. Yes. The, the, just that wonderful little word and what that does. <laughs> yes. And I think that fits into what you just said there. So I want to make sure we told people that you can see that. Give us a quick summary. That clip's there on entreleadership.com. Talk about that idea that you share briefly. The the summary is this you don't just have the right to say no, you have the responsibility Hello. to say no. And so when you are in your, you are running your life here if you don't protect what matters to you your time your sanity your sleep your habits your work if you don't protect them no one else will
you have the responsibility to set these boundaries, say no, and and run towards your finish line because no one's going to do it for you. All right, folks, that was the bumper sticker version of the two-minute <laughs> clip that's on the homepage, entreleadership.com, and you need to go see this. It's just a little bit of what Christy does. Real quick, uh, tell them where they can see you and follow you on Twitter, of course, and then the blog and, and what you're doing there because we want folks to know you're doing some fun stuff. Yeah. Big news coming. We can't talk about it now, <laughs> but just give us a highlight. Sure. So ChristyWright.com, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-W-R-I-G-H-T.com, and that's where I really do a lot of my writing. We have some great video clips there. We have some tools and resources. Um, we mainly focus on leadership and life balance. That's what I'm known for, certainly in the entree leadership space. It's such a need there. Um, but we've got some really cool stuff coming up for women specifically starting side businesses and helping them earn an income from home so they can have more flexibility with their families, but really get to experience that as well. It's great. And uh, one of the fun things we do on the Dave Ramsey Show is a feature we call Backseat Driver. It's on the video yes. channel. And I'm just telling you, <laughs> tomorrow, Christy and I are doing the episode with wait. her. And that's all I can say. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great fun. And I'm going to tell you about it because she's such a big part of what we do here at Entree Leadership. And it's going to be great fun. So that's I'm looking forward to that. I am can I say that? Is yes, that okay? absolutely. It's going to be It's really going to be fun. weird. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, all I can say, it ties in to Christy's past it entrepreneurial does. experiences. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, remember, folks, you can get... Get everything related to this podcast at entreleadership.com slash podcast. That's entreleadership.com slash podcast. So, Christy, can I assume that now that you're back from maternity leave, you can hang out in the studio with us more often? Absolutely. I'm yeah, here. Yeah. Do you like the co-hosting? I do. I love it. Okay. Yeah, I love the energy of working right. with people. I do a lot of stuff, One, you know, me yeah. to the audience. That's I love right. being, I lo- yeah, All I right. love the conversation. You heard it here first. <laughs> She's going to be back on a regular basis. Very exciting. The fall. Real quick, how excited are you about the SMART Conference? This is oh our my all-day gosh. event. You're going to be speaking there. That's the biggest audience I've ever spoken to. I'm nervous. It's crazy. It's, oh, but I can't wait. crush it. I can't wait. She was huge at the Entree Leadership Summit. Big, big, big results. Crowd loved her. So it's great. It's great fun. You're going to love that audience. It's huge. Absolutely. And the the talk that I give, I'm so passionate about. I can say it all day, every day, and it never gets old. Yes, it It really connects. All right, folks. Well, this has been a phenomenal episode. I want to start by thanking my co-host, Christy Wright, Ramsey personality. So great to have her in the studio with us. Of course, Gretchen Rubin for her time. Clayton Mask, always doing a good job for us, giving us a great tip from Infusionsoft. And Eric Producer and the entire Entree Leadership team for what they do to make this podcast happen. But we cannot say goodbye properly without thanking you, the audience, because you are why we do what we do, and you are why we get to keep doing it. So thank you very much for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon.